0: You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Macrodose, your weekly fix of everything economics. My name's Nick Banno and I'm a writer and barrister, specialising in representing homeless people, residential occupiers, and destitute and migrant households. My debut book, Against Landlords, How to Solve the Housing Crisis, is set to be published by Verso Books at the end of March this year. Today, I'm going to be presenting an alternative perspective on the housing crisis, one that does away with the usual talk of supply, demand and financialisation, and instead focuses on the underlying dynamic that is actually responsible for producing property values, the relationship between landlords and tenants. As always, a big thank you to those of you who support Macrodose over at Patreon.com. If you're enjoying this series of guest episodes, and if you have the means, do consider becoming a subscriber today. You can find all the show's latest content over at patreon.com slash macrodose. I'm going to kick us off with a quote. I want to do this because this quote highlights something that's easily forgotten, even in conversations about housing in progressive circles. It's from the Labour Party in the 1960s, and it's a statement that, in this day and age, feels surprisingly Marxist for a mainstream politician. It goes like this. If some people can make a killing of a million pounds, by an overnight sale of property. Someone has to pay for that million pounds. It does not come from nowhere. It is paid for, of course, by the tenants." That was Harold Wilson speaking in Parliament when he was leader of the opposition in 1963. He wasn't the most radical guy, and perhaps not the most analytical guy, but he's saying something in mainstream discourse that to us now feels incredibly daring and fresh. Because so much discussion of the housing crisis these days comes from an understanding of economics that's rooted in the neoclassical school, whether that's on the right or the centre or the ostensible left. The housing crisis tends to be seen entirely as a problem of supply and demand, with the main difference between opposing ends of the political spectrum being merely which sides of the equation is emphasised. If you're on the right, there is a housing shortage, a supply problem, If you're on the left, you might agree with this to some extent, but you'll probably place more emphasis on the problem of intense demand driven by the financialization of housing. What we don't see so much of is the point that Harold Wilson was making. I suppose you could almost call it a value theory point that the price of housing consists of the money that tenants have to pass over to landlords, irrespective of whether there's any housing shortage and irrespective of the whims of international finance capital. What I'm keen to put forward today is a slightly different conception of the housing crisis. One that leaves aside questions of supply and demand and tries instead to understand the crisis on its own terms. And I'm going to try and answer three questions. One, why am I trying to shrug off supply and demand arguments? Two, if it's not supply and demand, what is it? And three, what does this mean for the current moment bearing in mind the context of a cost-of-living crisis. So, on to question one, why I reject the premise of supply and demand. The first thing to note is that evidence for a housing shortage is actually very, very slight. If we think about the present housing crisis in Britain, it's been coming onto the boil over the last 20 years or so, and if you look at the data, there's been no sudden decline in the number of homes per household. In fact, the opposite appears to be true government data shows that there is actually a surplus of homes per capita, and more to the point, that surplus has actually been growing over the course of the crisis. That's true even in places like London and the South East. There's no shortage to speak of. It's very, very difficult indeed when you look at the data to make any sort of case for a housing shortage if you want to explain the last 20 years. When you look at the census data, what's really interesting is that most housing in England and Wales is under-occupied. I'll say that again, most homes, by which I mean 70%, are under-occupied, and only about 5% are overcrowded. There's easily enough housing to go around. This is not, as the mainstream discourse would have you think, a difficult exercise in allocating scarce resources. The wealth of our society includes an immense collection of houses. Those houses are commodities, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, how is it that everyone is living in such appalling and ever-worsening housing conditions? How is it that no one can afford or find a decent place to live? And how is it that all of this keeps getting so much worse when there exists an adequate amount of housing, both in comparison to other countries and in the context of the UK's own history? What I'm proposing to do today is to try and make good on Harold Wilson's argument that the housing crisis is paid for, of course, by the tenants. Some quick points before I dive in. The most common arguments for the origins of the housing crisis are the mass sell-off of social housing under the right to buy and the explosion of buy-to-let mortgages since the 90s. And it's worth mentioning them quickly. So, the decimation of social housing, yes, it's, it's hugely important, of course. But at the same time, the UK still has nearly double the number of socially rented homes, than the OECD average. So it can't be a complete answer. And on buy-to-let mortgages, again, a hugely important factor, the number of landlords has increased by more than 2 million during my lifetime, and roughly 1 in every 21 adults in the UK is now a landlord. But the idea that the increased accessibility of commercial credit is directly responsible for a decrease in the accessibility of housing just doesn't hold up. The extension of credit to more people merely indicates that creditors understand that housing is an inherently worthwhile investment, more than ever under current conditions. It doesn't explain why those conditions exist in the first place. So greater access to credit and the greater financialization of housing in general may be more of a catalyst of the crisis than an underlying cause. Right, let's move on to the second of those three questions I posed earlier, If it's not supply and demand, then what is it? It's long been argued, from Karl Marx to Adam Smith, that the price of landed property is a claim upon rental yields. That's true whether you're actually a landlord receiving rents or an owner-occupier. And there's a number of reasons for this. Firstly, markets don't distinguish between those two types of buyer, so owner-occupiers are competing with landlords who are chasing that rental yield. And second, because if you are an owner-occupier, you're essentially buying the right to avoid having to pay rent. So the financial benefit to you is reflected in the price you're willing to pay. So Marx and Smith both claim that the price of land, and therefore housing, consists of a claim upon the rentable value of the land, whether that's actual or notional. All of this reinforces the Harold Wilson idea that it's renters who pay for landowners' profits. If house prices reflect rental yields, then it's renters who pay for the killing that the homeowner makes when they buy and sell property. Marx gets very pissed off about this in Capital Volume 3. He scolds anyone who thinks that high house prices lead to high rents rather than the other way round. Of course, it's a mistake that mainstream discourse still routinely makes today, 150 years later. We should probably follow his lead and start getting a bit more pissed off about this ourselves. Another thing that Marx says is that housing rents, particularly in cities, are monopoly prices. Academic and author David Harvey has previously presented some quite sophisticated arguments about what exactly Marx means here, but to be honest, I think we can be much more unsophisticated about it and simply define a monopoly as the maximum price that an average landlord is able to extract in the particular circumstances. After all, housing is one, an absolute human need, two, it's basically non-reproducible, and three, it can be taken away from us. Which means that urban landlords are simply able to withhold access to it unless and until tenants are willing to pay the maximum that is physically achievable under given social conditions. So, landlords don't have to compete. They don't reproduce and undercut each other like other commodity producers. Competition is not how rental and housing prices find their limit. Landlords just have to withhold access to housing until a monopoly price is realised. In other words, the cost of rent is reached by working out what the average renter is able to pay rather than through competition. There was a headline in The Onion the other day that said landlord forced to raise rent because he thought of a bigger number. And quite frankly, I think that's absolutely correct in the extent to which it reflects a Marxist understanding of what housing rent is. It is the absolute maximum that the class of landlords can demand under a given set of social and economic circumstances without physically killing the class of tenants. And coming back to our friend Mr. Wilson, when we see this phenomenon of constantly rising rents, we can now understand that this is what's paying for the crisis of house prices that we're witnessing today. Rather than a housing shortage, and rather than high prices and demand driving up rents, it is precipitously rising rents. That have led to precipitously rising house prices. The increasing price of a house reflects the increasing rents that such a house hypothetically enables you to extract from tenants. It is quite literally renters who pay for house price inflation. How does this work in practice? We can do a worked example. Marx talked about capitalization, which is his method of understanding the value of financial commodities. He was talking mainly about stocks and dividends and gilts, but we can apply the same method to housing. So let's take a house that generates £1,000 a month in rent. That's £12,000 a year. If you want to buy it, you need to work out how much it's worth in cash terms. You do that by comparing it to other financial assets. How much would you have to invest elsewhere in the economy to make a yearly profit of £12,000? And you do that by looking at interest rates. Let's say they're at 5%. This tells you that you'd need to lay out £240,000 elsewhere in the economy to get an annual return of £12,000. So this means that a house, as a financial asset, is worth £240,000. But then, of course, you're not just buying the right to receive the £12,000 in year one. In a context of ever-rising rents, you factor into the price the growth in your returns over the lifetime of your investment. So basically, it's worth £240,000, plus a fair protection on top. Maths is not my strong suit, so I'm not about to work that out again, but hopefully you can appreciate the thrust of the point I'm making here. So we have this theoretical point that house prices are rent, and rents are monopolies. How is it that things have gotten so bad over recent decades? Well, the answer is that states all over the world know that rents are monopolies. That, if left to their own devices, Landlords can just exclude you from housing unless you meet their outrageous demands. So states all over the world step in to impose some sort of legal break on that rack-renting process. Often this is done through rent control, but more commonly through some form of security of tenure which acts to slow down rent increases. And the UK actually had these measures in place for almost the whole of the 20th century, but under Thatcher and Blair both were dismantled while the effects of abolishing rent controls are obvious, the removal of people's housing security creates a silent compulsion. Renters who can be evicted at a whim become a very, very, very disciplined class of people. They don't complain, they keep a low profile, but more importantly, they agree to the monopoly rent. So our path to the current crisis was that the state removed the tenant protection laws which had constrained rents during the 20th century and instead created a system in which monopoly rents can be realised instantly. Nowadays, landlords don't have to wait for a sitting tenant to leave or die. They don't even have to go through any legal process for raising a rent. They turn around to their tenants and say, the rent is going up. I'm sure you all already know from experience, it really is as simple as that to realise a monopoly rent in Britain. And of course, because the UK does have a limited social safety net, which includes housing benefits, the state guarantees to underwrite at least part of the demands that landlords make on society, no matter how bad things get. This means that there are only three government departments that have a larger budget than the DWP spending on housing benefit alone, and all of that money goes to line the pockets of landlords as a reward for engaging in an activity that creates no economic value. So to refine our earlier point, it's not just tenants but also the state that's paying for the ever-rising cost of housing. To sum up, it's not really to do with supply. There is no shortage. We hear a great deal about financialisation, but the housing market is driven not by finance capital, but by those millions of small-time landlords competing with millions of small-time owner-occupiers for the spoils of housing profits. So what do we do with this information? And what does all this mean in the context of a cost-of-living crisis? As we all know, there's a massive squeeze on living standards taking place at the moment. Ten years of wage stagnation, followed by the current period of massive inflation, has meant that right now, in real terms, wages are falling. How does this affect housing? And how does it affect monopoly rents? Because obviously, if rents find their limits not through competition, but through society's ability to pay, and if society's ability to pay is under threat, that is potentially a big problem for landlords and their allies, the homeowner. And I think the reality is that we're at a fork in the road. Things could go one of two ways. Either prices will have to fall to reflect social means, or prices stay the same but conditions get worse. In the first possible outcome, you've got very serious wage restraint. And you've got interest rates that are rising, which affects the value of land. If we go back to Marx's capitalisation method that we employed earlier, when interest rates were 5%, the house we imagined was worth 240 grand. But if interest rates rise, and it would be more profitable to invest your money elsewhere in the economy, then house prices would have to fall in order to compete with those other assets. To give an example, if interest rates were, let's say, 10%, then you could make the £12,000 a year that the landlord makes from renting out the house with £120,000 invested elsewhere, which means the house price would have to halve in order to stay competitive with the other financial assets. So landlords are not only facing tenants who are less able to constantly meet their demands for rising rents, but also more expensive payments on their own mortgages and an asset that is simply less valuable than it had been before. Now, the average healthy rental yield for a buy-to-let is 4 to 5%. It's nice if you can get it, but it's not much. It wouldn't take a huge amount for that percentage to disappear or even reverse itself. And this is precisely what happened in the Edwardian era, You had a cost-of-living crisis, rising interest rates, and landlords found that they couldn't even bear the cost of essential repairs. Their properties were becoming liabilities rather than assets. In fact, the value of housing dropped by 40% over this period. The second possibility is that tenants continue to meet landlords' demands, continue to make payments, but they have to make further sacrifices to their living conditions as a result. I'd recommend Mike Davis's Planet of Slums for a really interesting and terrifying range of possibilities for modern-day squalor in rich and poor countries alike. If we look at places like Hong Kong, where the working class is pincered between very expensive real estate and local capital's need for cheap wages, what happened is that the working class has agreed to keep paying the high rents but has sacrificed their living conditions as a result. 200,000 people live in what have been termed coffin homes. So out of these two possibilities, it seems that the first is obviously preferable. I'm sure we'd all be delighted to see the value of landlords' assets collapse, but don't for a minute think that they won't bring us down with them. Unfortunately, we have a national economy that is disproportionately reliant on property values. More than 50% of the UK's net worth consists of property value. That's around double the proportion of property value that makes up Germany's net worth. So renters are totally dependent on their own exploitation every time they meet a landlord's demand for a monopoly rent and pay the maximum they can without dying, that is a self-serving act because it ensures that the broader economy, which is built on property ownership, continues to flourish. It's a real catch 22. And there it is. The truth is that if we really want to start tackling the housing crisis, then we've got to forget about housing shortages. We should start downplaying the role of finance capital. And instead, we should follow Harold Wilson, Adam Smith, and Marx himself and say, when someone makes a killing from housing, it is paid for by the tenants. It's this relationship between renter and landlord that must be our focus if we want to increase the accessibility of secure housing, if we want to stop the indefinite rise of house prices, if we want to see a more equitable distribution of homes, and if we want to see an end to the housing crisis. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.